honestly, I was just working my way up to death. I thought about killing myself every day. I was using all the time, and I, that's not a sustainable lifestyle. My brother shot himself because of drugs. When you are using technology to lure children for sexual purposes, there's a couple of problems that concern me. But I remember feeling kind of relieved after hurting myself. Do you have any idea how much you were worth? I like to say it this way, great people are really built in the furnace of affliction. Our teens are navigating a world of information anarchy and increased stress and pressure. Drugs are glorified more than ever before and there seems to be a suicide option that didn't exist prior. As adults, we are responsible to provide the help at-risk teens need. Have teens changed or is it just the world they live in that's different? Is this why so many teens are traumatized or triggered? My name is Aaron Huey, and in 2009, I opened a home for these teens with the hopes of giving them a second chance at creating the life we all know they deserve. Now I want to give parents the information that contributed to our success and to support them in navigating the at-risk world. These are the stories told by the teens and the techniques used by experts to help them. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. My sex ed in high school consisted of Coach Kloster sitting behind his desk and reading from a textbook about what men and women uh, who are in love do. He never looked up at any of us. He uh, read all of this information in a monotone voice. And bless his heart, Coach Klosterman was... was uh, red in the face. He The entire time he was so highly embarrassed. And I don't think he would have been able to keep a straight face uh, had he looked up and seen our faces, which were just a mixture of uh, shock, repulsion, but mostly questions. I left sex ed with more unanswered questions than I began it with. Um, I came from a small town in Colorado that was probably purple as far as conservative versus liberal, um, even back then. Uh, and all the kids I was in health class with, I had grown up with. We had all known each other. Everybody knew who everybody dated. And when someone had sex, everybody knew. It was relatively small. In the work that I've been doing with teenagers, I've gone from those embarrassed moments to kids who come in bragging that they are the slut of their school or the pimp of their school. I myself uh, was sexually assaulted. So I come to this conversation with still questions of how it should have been, pain from what happened, fear for what the children are going through, and having kids of my own, a relatively healthy understanding on how to have a conversation with teenagers about things that could be embarrassing. And I think this poses the question is, why is it embarrassing? Why are we still embarrassed to talk to a child about something that we all do and we can enjoy and we can experience massive pleasure from and have babies? And why is there so much pain attached to it? These questions just kind of hover in my background because of the work I do with adolescents. The first time I walked in on my son who was looking at porn, 
at age 12, what he was looking at was not what I saw when I was 12. So once again, we come to the thing, we come, we come to the point that times have changed, but human brains haven't. And what's happened because of that? With all this stuff, what happened was I was on Facebook and I saw a picture of a, of a young black high school girl with just gorgeous red hair. She's beautiful. And she's holding a sign written on a small whiteboard that says, I need real sex ed because the young men in our school still don't know what consent is. And this picture alone has 14 shares, tons of comments. I followed this page back and the Facebook page was called, Yes, Your Empowered Sexuality. And it was filled with teens holding signs, information, support, questions were being answered and they were being answered honestly. So I reached out to these people because I know parents still need help with this. And I got in touch with Rebecca, Izzy and Natalie and they are from the Yes, out of New Jersey. They're my guests today. Today is real teen, real sex ed. And I want to welcome parents, teachers, and clinicians to this week's episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Rebecca, Izzy, and Natalie, thank you guys so much for being here with me. I'm so excited about this. I still have a ton of questions, and I know you guys have amazing answers. Thank you so much for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Excited to be here. Good, good. Okay. So. First off, let's start with this picture that I saw. What, what you're telling me offline as I was going through is that you guys have suddenly got some taste of being viral. Tell me about mm -hmm. this experience. Well, it's been, for me, a bit overwhelming. Um, we have been discussing sort of the issues that arise when you get a lot of attention, um, both good and bad, and how to address that. So. As a group, we've been doing a lot of discussion on how to respond to negative comments or comments that attack. Um, and also, you know, simultaneously basking in all of these beautiful comments and positive responses, which is always a pleasure to see. Yeah, so this photo series was done two years ago at one of our workshops, actually at a few of our workshops. Um, and we just invited young people to share whatever they felt was missing from their sexuality education and the openness and honesty and articulation of of deeply personal and and vital stuff was so beautiful and their bravery just continues to inspire us and and i think that's really what keeps people coming to this photo series what got all this attention is that it's it's rare to see the voices of the students themselves of high school students lifted up in that way. Um, and I think they're, what they're experiencing as young people has affected people their age and also people generations older than them because there's so little that's changed in some ways. So people are really connecting with their pain, with their experiences, with what was missing. So um, in addition to the people who are attacking them, because I think that just shows that they're onto something, you know, either way, I think people are really connecting with their messages. How did all this start? I mean, you guys, did you all start together with the three of you hanging out and said, <laughs> sex dad sucks, let's do something better? How did this, how did this begin? Um, well, it would really began with Izzy and another friend of ours, Eve. So uh, Izzy, I don't know if do you want to. Sure. 
Yeah, so it actually did kind of begin just how you were describing. My friend Eve and I went to high school together. Natalie and Rebecca went to high school with us also. And Eve and I, after graduating from college, moved back to our hometown of Montclair, New Jersey, where we stayed for about six months before um, our next adventure. And we were literally in a room, in her bedroom, <laughs> talking about, you know, what does it mean to be back in our hometown? now with a college education. What do we have that we didn't have before and what do we have to offer our community? Um, and we feel really connected to Montclair High School. You know, it's a place that has a lot of flaws like any public high school and a lot of wonderful things happen there. And, and I, I certainly can say that I got a lot of experiences and gifts from, from the high school. So we were thinking, what can, what can we offer that population? Um, and you know we didn't get any consent education while we were there so we thought that's something we can offer let's do consent workshops and in bringing that idea to the health teachers and the administration we were met with a lot of pushback we were met with a lot of actually verbal support but red tape people saying this is a great idea but i just don't see how this could happen this is too controversial what if we get sued um you really you really need to be an organization before we can contemplate Taking you in. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So at that point, Natalie and Rebecca came on board and we made yes. it official. We were, we started over the summer and then we went, to, when the school year started, we went uh, to talk to them and they told us that we needed to be a real organization. And so we just said, okay, let's do it. <laughs> and so all together and like, how, do, how are we going to do this? So is the goal to be in schools or to be in churches or are you going after the individual? What what has by far been the most challenging? What's been the most successful? Well, yeah. I think from I think from the beginning, um, Izzy and Eve sort of wanted to reach as many people as possible, right? And we we're totally on board with that. We feel like regardless of age or demographic, we we need you to hear this information. You have the right to. Um, and it's important for everyone to to sort of have access to consent education, sexuality education. So initially we wanted to give back, you know, to our high school. We thought that that would be the most accessible community. Um, and we sort of realized along the way that, sure, that might not be the case. I mean, it's it's incredible now that we are back in there and able to work with, you know, old teachers and current students. Um, but I think our goal is always to reach as many people as possible. Yeah. I mean, especially Oh, sorry, go, Natalie, go ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead, keep going. Oh, I just say that, um, and we want to reach people in like whatever platform is possible and available to us. Um, and it took us, because it took us, I would say, it took us almost, I think, over a year to get into Montclair High School, Yeah. right? Uh, uh, we took, and I remember we had to, we called the school every day for a month, Izzy and I, and I think Rebecca did too. Um, I don't, I don't remember as much though. Um, and it just took forever and we were very frustrated about it, but. Right, but so with Natalie's help, um, we have been able to sort of reach more people through various platforms. Like she helped us establish a blog, which is called Verbatim, where we allow people to share any stories regarding sexuality or their experience um, regarding consent or their personal sexuality. So that's a way that we're able to sort of educate um, and just sort of inform people about what's going on. and. We also started a web series a while back, which Natalie um, sort of streamlined, so. So 
Okay, so let's let's back up and talk about the culture that you guys are up against. So let's go to the very basic. What is the current state of sex education uh, in 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 the United States in in your old high school? Has it has it changed since what I essentially said? A, a teacher, a coach droning behind a desk. <laughs> well, so so the thing is that sexuality education in the U.S. is the Wild West. You know, like there's no there's no consistency between state to state locality to locality or teacher to teacher. Um, so laws are different everywhere. Uh, you know, evidence-based, scientifically accurate sex ed is only required in some states and not others. Our sex ed um, that we received in high school was, was certainly better than average. We did have it and we received some really important information wait a minute um, wait a minute you said you said <laughs> that your sex ed was better than average because I, you had it yeah, yeah. i'm not kidding uh yeah <laughs> it's no, ridiculous. I, it is it's ridiculous it's a really sad state of affairs there is there are very few standards often the standards that there are um are bad i mean many curricula that are widely used have lies in them and that's acceptable to people. There, there are curricula that are widely used to that say that condoms don't protect against HIV, that HIV can be passed from skin to skin contact. Um, so it's impossible to know what sex ed in any individual school looks like unless you talk to those teachers and you talk to those students. Um, so part of what needs to happen is policy reform, but part of what needs to happen is, is uh, you know, just wider variety or a wider, I'm sorry, wider access to um, scientifically accurate and shame-free resources because too often sexuality education is taught uh, through fear and through shame because uh, many adults think that that will scare kids out of having sex even though there is a lot of research that proves that it doesn't. So uh, that's a sh short answer to what's the state of sex ed today. So how are we doing with STDs and pregnancies and teens? What's our what's our current state? If it's if it's still looking pretty bleak with education, is it getting better? Or is it getting worse? Yeah, you know what? That's a great question. The thing is that <laughs> so what I would say is that actually pregnancy and STDs. First of all, I mean we're not doing great. I'll say that we are not doing great, especially the more marginalized communities um, are not having the access they need. Uh, to be able to get healthier. But the thing is that it's actually, in my opinion, not an accurate measure of sexuality education to look at pregnancy and STIs because that's, that's very much uh, how the U.S. has measured sex ed is in public health outcomes that are measurable. But the thing is sexuality is so, is so basic to our humanity. It's so much deeper than those outcomes and those outcomes can mean different things than we think. Um, so we really need to be looking at self-esteem, body image, healthy relationships, um, all these other wider things that aren't so easily measured in order to see the benefits and, and the successes of sexuality education. Yeah. You're talking, you, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say, yeah, and also that's why we um, we also try to look at like starting consent from a young age, like for five-year-olds, and that's also why we have, like that's why we made um, a, our coloring book called the Body Parts and Boundaries. Nope, that's not what it's called. I'm so sorry. Um, my Body, Your Body. Uh, that we're, My we're Body, back. Their Body. My Body, Their Body, all apologies. Um, which is a coloring book for 
uh, is it for five to seven year olds or three to five? I forget. But I thought we would put that out there. Okay. Yes. So now there's there's two things you guys are bringing up here. First of all, I've always said that if they actually started teaching emotional intelligence to uh, elementary school kids, continued it through middle school, and then really pressed it into high school, that I would be out of a job. <laughs> and that would be a good thing because I did my the the work that I do. Uh, there's I'm not. I'm not starving for more clients where we have a wait list. So, mm. but you're talking about emotional intelligence. A yeah. lot of people don't even know what that means. And you're talking about beginning to introduce consent as young as five-year-olds with a coloring book. Younger than that, as young as infants <laughs> from day one, from birth. So there was a recently, and whether it was fake news or not, the idea, the concept of it still is uh, uh, pressing. And a lot of parents of this, of, of this generation and millennials are questioning about how much say a child has. And, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the, the, the woman who came on and said that you have to get consent from an infant to change the diaper. Mm. And... I, again, I don't I don't care whether that was real or not. What I care about is the conversation that it sparked, where a lot of adults think that kids have too much say, and a lot of adults still are holding on to a very old paradigm of not asking a child's opinion at all and not giving yeah. choice, which is sharing power, which is teaching how to make choices. So exactly. where do you guys stand on this? And what do you mean by consent of infancy? I'm so glad you asked. Um, <laughs> so I, I actually, I'm a preschool teacher um, and I work in a center. I work with four and five-year-olds, but I work in a center with infants. And of course we don't ask for consent before we change a diaper because an infant can't grant that consent. But what we do is we always say, I'm going to change your diaper now. I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to change your diaper now because we're showing that infant we're building from birth the idea that the child deserves to know what's going to happen to their body. They're not able to make a choice yet, right? That's not safe. We have to change their diaper. We have to keep them clean. Even my four and five-year-olds who are able to speak, I give them choices whenever possible. Sometimes, right, if one child is hurting another and I've used words and it's not working, I might have to pick them up to remove them. But I always say, if you're not able to be responsible for your own body right now, then I'm going to have to be responsible for your body. So I'm going to pick you up now. So they have a chance to decide they can do what they need and I don't have to pick them up. But if they can't do that, I'm going to pick them up. But I'm just giving them the respect of not assuming that their body is for me to touch anytime I want, however I want, which is how a lot of adults interact with children. A lot of adults walk up to children and ruffle their hair, kiss their face, even strangers. And we're showing kids just, you know, stay still and take it, like respond as if adults have the right to treat your body how they want to. And that's not the case. And that's a dangerous precedent. So whenever possible, we give children choices. And when not possible, we explain why. We say, you know, you're not wanting to take a bath. And I wish that I could let you be responsible for your own body. But that's not a safe choice. So I have to clean you now, right? Like giving them as much respect as possible and as much explanation and choice as possible. Yeah. I'll, I'll also say that I think that the sort of... Um, apprehension and sort of fear from parents that I've heard is that especially at family functions or with people who they themselves are very close with that their child's distance or their lack of 
affection towards like this new person is going to come off as rude and sort of rub their friend or their family the wrong way or make them feel as though the kid doesn't love them or want to talk to them and sort of what we have to say to that is well maybe that's the case and you know if your child is uncomfortable or maybe fearful themselves i think that being rude to a grown person is much less significant than putting themselves in a space where they feel uncomfortable or allow themselves to be touched in a way that makes them sort of afraid absolutely it's amazing you're talking about teaching these things to very young kids and it yes. certainly makes sense and love and logic which i'm an instructor of uh has has promoted sharing choice and power e even in uh, uh extremely young kids you want to wear the red shoes or the blue shoes i don't want to right. wear shoes we're going outside <laughs> and, sh and shoes are being worn do you want the red one so there's always a way to share power and choice right um but as i'm listening to you guys talk about this i can't help but hear you saying these exact same words in a high school setting or in a middle school setting like yeah. like you're not you're not really teaching anything different other than right. hey, this this body belongs to you and there's a exactly. way for us to communicate that yes. uh, allows you to remain in charge of your body that's right. exactly what it is and and what rebecca was just saying too is is um that there are ways to show love and affection other than touch and how vital is that to learn at a young age that you don't have to use your body to show someone that you care about them? Because that is a huge narrative we hear from teenagers saying, the first time I had sex, it's because my partner said, if you really love me, you would, right? So from a young age, we, you know, when we do these workshops with kindergartners, one of the big activities we did is how can you show someone you care about them? Do you have to give them a hug or a kiss to show them? And the kids say, no, you can wave at them. You can give them a high five. How about you use your words and say, I love you. And they brainstorm all these ways to show love and affection that don't have to be dependent on using your body in a way that doesn't feel good. Yeah, we also, when, yeah, Natalie, yeah. Yeah, and when you do that, um, then you, um, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't even know what I was gonna say anymore. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was gonna say, I was gonna say on the same note, um, we, a lot of the questions we get are how do you sort of allow this information to be transferable to different sort of age groups? And yeah, we do this with, we do this with kindergartners and pre-K students. But as you get older, we sort of discuss, you know, if you don't, if you're, if you are sexually active with your partner and perhaps you don't wanna engage in that like what's a what's a way that feels sexy and safe to sort of initiate you know i'm not in the mood for this but maybe this um which is something that i think a lot of young people struggle with because they often default to physical intimacy or things that they've done before in order to uh make a situation be over or sort of rush to the end of something if they're not particularly interested in it does that make sense it does i one of the things that I still do over at my facility is teach martial arts to the kids and the martial arts style that I teach is very aggressive. Um, and the the conversation went from, you know, the, the moves we were doing yesterday into what do you do, you know, when you're living in your apartment and we talked about a baseball bat behind the door and we talked about keeping windows secure and we talked about and as the boys listen and the girls listen, one of the things that I bring up and I've brought up for many years is that boys can stop really worrying about being kidnapped and raped once they start to pass the age of 13, 14 years old, but that girls 
maintain that fear their whole lives. And that's very surprising to boys. Is that something you agree with or has your work shown that um, I'm still giving older information? Um, do you guys mind if I respond real quick? Sure. Go uh, we put together a workshop a while ago at, for Montclair High School, young men. Um, it was just for it was just for male students in the CSJ and it was um, an identity workshop where we sort of did an activity where we placed different um, different sort of aspects of identity as far as race, demographic, um, gender, et cetera, around the room. And we asked different questions and we had the students go to that section that they felt answered the question best. So if I can sort of explain this more clearly, we, we, I believe had a question that said, when I'm walking down the street, what I think about most is, and there were a lot of young black men in that demographic that we were workshopping and all of them went to race. And me and my co-facilitator, who is another woman, we both went to And I think that that was the moment in the workshop that was the most impactful for us and also for the, the young men in the room who, none of which went to gender. Um, so I don't think that that specific information that you're conveying to your, to your students and your participants is outdated. I think that that is very true, that most men that we work with and that I've talked with don't consider their gender when they're walking down the street or are fearful of being kidnapped or assaulted in that way. And I think most women do. Yeah, I think um, that's a really important point that in public from a stranger, the, the risk um, for women is very different than it is for men. Um, I will say that men after the age of 13 do get raped and assaulted um, <clears throat> just as women and gender nonconforming people do. It's just most often in the context of people that they know just in the same way that most rape and most sexual violence is in the context of uh, relationships of people that we know. But that, that doesn't mean that that fear <clears throat> for women and for gender nonconforming people as they walk down the street isn't always there because it doesn't have to be common for the fear to be prevalent. And there are many ways that men show their power in the street besides actually assaulting, which is, you know, the purpose of street harassment and things like that. Is yeah. your, Natalie, go ahead. Oh, I was saying, I, um, I taught uh, sexuality education in Newark um, last semester and I was just, it, it was um, a topic that came up a lot is uh, relationships. A, a lot of what um, the boys in my classes asked me was about um, having sex when you're in a relationship and, and um, how consent works when you're in a relationship. Um, and it was a lot of the, a lot of the boys I talked to, like they all, they, a lot of them thought that they had like had the right to have sex with their partners because they're in a relationship and that relationship was the consent. Um, and so I think, I just, I don't think it's outdated. I think that a lot of people still have a lot of misconceptions about it. Um, I just wanted to add that. I, I hear you guys talking about workshops that you've done with boys. And, and I think that partially answers my question, but as I'm on your yes page, um, I get the feeling that your information and the primary uh, audience for the support you're offering is for girls. So how do you structure um, 
who your demographic is. Are you for girls or are you for boys and girls? And do you find boys find a home uh, on your support pages? Primarily Facebook is what I'm referencing. Mm -hmm. Well, does anyone else want to answer? I mean, I have things to say, but you can go first. <laughs> I just want to, I just want to say that we are interested in reaching all genders. Um, the workshops that have come our way and that we've been sort of allowed to facilitate have been primarily for the Women's Now Summit or for women's groups or um, LGBT groups at the high school in Montclair. So it's sort of, I mean, absolutely, we want to reach these demographics. We love it. But um, it's really, as far as I'm concerned, what we've thus far had access to. And, yeah, and, and we're also, this is an organization that is predominantly, right now it's run by women. Um, so I guess it makes sense that we, as women, um, our organization does lean towards women, but I don't know if it was, but we don't, but we haven't, we don't want to not reach people who are, who don't identify as girls and women. Um, that was yeah. never our. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I think that sexuality education vitally has to uh, reach people of all genders. And not only that, that has to include workshops of people of multiple genders together. Um, we don't support uh, separating girls and boys for sex ed, as has been the tradition for a long time. And that's because it, I mean, it's for many reasons. And one is that it increases the, the sense um, that boys and girls are fundamentally different, that they have fundamentally different needs, and that they're more different than they are similar, that they're oppositional. And we believe that actually uh, most people have very similar needs when it comes to sexuality. It's the socialization that teaches us that we're so different. We want boys and girls and people of all genders to know that they can communicate with each other, to know what each other feels. And so we really believe that having people together um, is important. The photo series that you mentioned before is mostly women. There were men, first of all, there are men in the series, and there are also men at the event who did not choose to participate. And we can see why it might be less comfortable for men to participate in something like that. Um, but there is another photo series on our page that is all men from the workshop that Rebecca mentioned that has a photo series called I am a feminist because, and these, that was a workshop um, during the national women's month and um, women's history month. And it was about feminism and what boys role is in feminism and supporting women. Um, but in general, it's about reaching as many people as possible because if you only target one demographic, then we're not really making cultural change so you're you're bringing up the 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 word feminism a lot, oh, yeah. and and in your literature, I did see that you, and we talked about this before, uh, the 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 feminist approach towards uh, positive sex positive sexuality, the uh, feminist approach to sex positive sexuality, and the first words out of my mouth were, "You're going to have to explain what sex positive <laughs> sexuality means," but let's talk about the feminism piece first. The word feminism, the concept of it, which still eludes most men. Yeah. Uh, you're right. As I, as I go through your page and I'm looking at all your photos and everything, my first gut is this is for women. I don't think that's bad. Mm -hmm. I think that um, there, there is a there's a desire to connect with 
uh, people who are still being abused by a system that is bent towards the masculine, which we Absolutely. still are, in my opinion. Um, so I yep. don't find any fault in you guys having a niche market were you to choose, hey, we're going to work with girls, we're going to educate girls. But I hear you when you say you are absolutely want all genders, gender neutral, um, boys, girls, everybody in there getting this information. Mm -hmm. um, feminism still makes men uncomfortable. And we only learn when we're uncomfortable. I truly believe that as well. We don't learn when we're comfortable. We learn when we're uncomfortable. So fuck it. Make them uncomfortable. That's what I'm <laughs> hoping you guys do is get out there and make people as uncomfortable as possible because that's going to create change. If it doesn't challenge you, it doesn't change you. But let's go to the idea that people still don't know what you're talking about when you mean feminism. And if you're going to be teaching my son and my daughter from a feminist approach, what do you mean? How does, how is that going to look? Yeah. So again, as you said, feminism is a, is a divisive word, um, which shows how much we need it because what feminism means is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a challenge to the power dynamic that exists. As you said, the valuing, overvaluing and centering of masculine of men. Um, so our current society gives men more power than women. And feminism is saying women are entitled to the full range of choices, the full range of humanity and the power that they deserve. Of course, when women have more choices and more humanity, men also gain more choices and more humanity because it doesn't divide us into men can be this way and women can be this way. It's everybody can be who they really are. Um, but that takes centering, as you said, women and people who have been marginalized and men have to step back and listen. And I think that is the challenge for men is to have to hear, this isn't about you. You're, you're implicated in it. You have to learn from it, but you're not the center of this discussion. You're, you're in the audience role right now where you're gonna have to listen to somebody else's story. And I know that's hard. That's especially hard uh, you know, when you've been told you're important and you're interesting your whole life and now you're being told what you have to say is not as important as what somebody else has to say right now. Um, so our feminist approach of course, we're not telling boys that we're not going to listen to them in our workshops, but um, our feminist approach means that we uh, approach all issues through this lens of masculinity and men have been valued over women historically, and we're going to change that power dynamic. And when we say intersectional feminist lens, that means that we're not just thinking about structural oppression of women. We're also thinking of oppression of black and brown people, oppression of poor people, oppression of disabled people and how all of these oppressions interact and are dependent on each other. So when we say intersectional feminist approach, it means we are approaching sexuality education in an anti-oppressive way, in a way that flips harmful power dynamics and includes everyone. Well said. Talk, talk <laughs> about sex positive sexuality then. So sex positivity means discussing sex and bodies and sexuality in a shame-free way. So um, something that I guess I heard first at Masakane, which is where Izzy trained and Natalie trained, is not to yuck someone else's yum. So at the most basic, that means not to sort of shame someone or make them feel badly for something they might like or enjoy. Um, and it's also- did you, say, did you say not to yuck someone's yum? <laughs> yes. That's brilliant. <laughs> I didn't make it up, don't credit me. <laughs> That's brilliant. And you know what? Yeah. That's another example of something you could teach kids from the youngest ages, because my four-year-olds say that not about sex, 
about food and about other things they like, but they'll say, hey, don't yuck my yum. And so, you know, it's set up from an early age. <laughs> um, and just another thing about uh, sex positive sex education is it's also not looking at sex just as from the reproductive angle. Mm -hmm. um, that, that our bot, that sex is just there so that we can make babies. Um, and actually mm -hmm. talk about the, what is like, what um, pleasure is, what is pleasurable. Um, you know, and so then when you do that, you start talking about different parts of the body and different anatomy um, that you don't really talk about if you're only if your focus is on the on reproduction, um, like like the clitoris, for instance, which isn't which really doesn't have much to do with um, with uh, reprodu reproduction, but it is very important when it comes to pleasure. So what age are you going to start introducing that information? Because as we discussed before, one of the confusing things for parents is how old do they need to be before you start talking about the clitoris and pleasure? Right. Well, so the thing is, we teach body parts really all at the same time, right? As kids learn to talk, we teach them the names of their body parts. And there is no reason not, the, not to teach them the names of all of their body parts. At the same time that we teach boys the word for penis, there is no reason we shouldn't be teaching people the word for clitoris, the words for vulva. Um, you know, it's it's just a body part. So yeah. that I think is is very easy. But in terms of pleasure and some of these more complicated concepts, um, if a kid is asking about it, first of all, they're ready to hear about it on some level. And I, I strongly believe, and we believe as an organization, that any question can be answered age appropriately at any age. So the question, for example, where do babies come from that a lot of parents really dread? You're going to answer that differently for a two-year-old than for a 10-year-old, but I believe it can be answered age appropriately in either case. For a two-year-old, you can say they come from inside a parent's body, right? Like that's enough information. If the kid wants to know more, they'll ask more and you can answer more. If it's from a 10-year-old, you're probably going to explain sperm and eggs and maybe how they get together. Um, so follow your child's lead, first of all. Um, but certainly by puberty, it's time to start talking about all of these things because they're going to start affecting kids. And a lot of, you know, a lot of kids know about their clitoris in some way right before they know the words for it because kids masturbate. And that is uh, something that's very difficult for parents to accept, but it's true and it's actually developmentally appropriate and healthy from a very young age. Um, and so it's just explaining why that feels good. That might be actually very empowering for children, a lot of whom feel a lot of shame and guilt for masturbating because they don't know what it is and they have a sense that it's dirty. So just saying like, yeah, we all have body parts that feel good to touch. It's good to touch them yourself in your room. It's a private thing. No one else should be touching them. You know, that's worth talking about. Let's jump from this back to another hot button topic. You know, one was, um, uh, we talked about toxic masculinity. We talked about feminism. Another hot button, which is, you know, something you just see a lot in social media right now is rape culture. Yeah. Nobody wants to point a finger at rape culture and what is rape culture and is what this politician said part of rape culture. And 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 certainly in my work with um, so, some boys and men saying, man, I don't even know what I can say anymore. I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. And my response usually is, well, imagine how women have felt about walking yeah. down the street on eggshells for the last, oh, 300,000 years. Right. But so, so men are, again, standing in the places, what what is the thing I'm doing that's making me toxic? What do you tell boys and girls about toxic masculinity? Yeah. 
So rape culture, just to start with, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it, I think it's a it's a scary word, it, but all it means is that we live in a culture that thinks of sexual violence as something normal. And that doesn't mean we don't think of it as something bad and something sad, but we don't feel surprised that it happens. And that's demonstrated by things like when we hear that someone was sexually assaulted, it's common to hear questions like, well, what was she wearing? Where was she? Was she drunk? And all of those questions demonstrate that we think that there are circumstances under which sexual violence is a normal response, right? We think like, well, if she was wearing that, it makes sense that someone assaulted her, which of course is not true. Um, it's never someone's fault for being assaulted ever, ever. Um, but our culture tells us that rape is normal, that rape happens frequently, and that it's even maybe biologically predetermined, but it's something that will always happen. Um, and that's something that we are working hard against and we are, we are aiming for consent culture. And that's the goal of starting young with kids and talking to their parents is that we have, we believe there is a potential to change culture, to normalize consensual, healthy sexuality rather than violent sexuality. And then, which also goes to you know, the whole boys will be boys and like dress codes and how dress codes are. Um, you know, it's about what women are wearing and, and girls are wearing and how to not distract boys and how like, you know, we are all we can all be responsible for ourselves. Um, you know, and take responsibility for our actions. Uh, you know, getting drunk isn't a crime, but rape is, and so we shouldn't be looking at the person who's getting drunk, but the person who's committing the crime. Absolutely. Currently, when you guys are watching TV and you're you're with your friends, um, and something comes on that that promotes it, I, I think the question I'm trying to get to is: Are you guys still in the phase in your own lives? around the people that you hang out with, that you were in a constant state of education. If a commercial comes on and here we are in another beer commercial and the guys are dressed in frumpy shorts and shirts and the women are rocking around in bikinis, are you turning it off? Are you grabbing the remote and calling bullshit? Are you pointing it out to your friends? Are they rolling their eyes at you or, or are you still... Are you still finding yourself after the commercial going, well, crap, that was exactly... Where, where are you with this and how do you maintain your discipline of education with this? So I, I feel lucky that I have a community of people who are on board with me about these issues. So I don't have to be constantly educating with my friends. Um, there are people who have done their analysis, have understand that basic concept of, of rape culture and can recognize it. Um, but that doesn't make it easier to be bombarded with it. And the truth is that there's no media that I've ever experienced that's free of all problematic concepts, you know, that's free from any kind of misogyny or racism or other kinds of oppression. And so in some ways you, you learn to enjoy things and still see what's wrong with them. And, and you, you, you know, for your own mental health, you're able to live in the world, right? But that doesn't mean we ever stop on a broader level fighting back. So on an individual level, like we have to accept some media with problems. And then on a broader level, we talk about how do we change who the media makers are? How do we change whose stories are being told? Um, and how do we give kids, most importantly, how do we give kids the tools with which to analyze the media they're consuming so that they can watch TV 
without taking in all messages. And that's something we encourage parents to do from a very early age too, is build critical thinking skills. Because if we just don't expose kids to certain kinds of TV and then they're suddenly exposed, then they're just getting bombarded with these messages. But if from an early age, we say to kids like, are you noticing like how many of these characters are girls? How many of these characters are boys? How much makeup are the 10 year old girls wearing on the show versus the boys and why? Like, what do you think about what the girls get to do or the boys get to do? What do you think about that kiss? Like, they didn't actually talk about that beforehand. How do you know if she liked that kiss or if he did? You know, if you talk about that while you are watching TV with your kids, you give the kids the tools to later accept the parts of the TV that are acceptable to them and reject the other parts without we, um, having we, to. Yeah. There's, a, there's a piece of this that my daughter educated me on. And growing up, um, I read a book called Reviving Ophelia. When I had a daughter, my mom handed me the book, said, you have to read this so you know what you're what you're entering into and what you got to do different. My mom only had boys, but she had yeah. read Reviving, Reviving Ophelia. And like I said, handed it to me. I was, I was blown away. I was completely awakened to a world that I didn't know existed. And it started to remind me of things like, hey, man, I grew up with this, this action figure, not a doll. Don't call it a doll. <laughs> it's an action figure, right. right? It's a doll. Of course it's a doll. But this one was called He-Man. He-Man. Yeah. He had no body fat. He had massive muscles. He was incredibly disproportioned, but that was what it meant to be he and man. Now, my daughter had every kind of a doll action figure under the sun. Sometimes when we would go out, she would princess up and sometimes she would go out and she would black eyeliner and a kiss t-shirt and black jeans. And she, she had the freedom, but it was her education where to me, where she said, I don't want to watch that movie. I want to watch Kiki's delivery service because she doesn't need a boy. Mm. And I, you know, and Princess Mononoke. And she started to fall in love with that guy's, uh, Miyazaki's movies because his female heroes did not need a boy to make them powerful. They were powerful of their own accord. And that was very eye-opening to me. And so I want to know from from all you guys, what do you? Where do you refuse to shop? Where do you refuse to eat? What do you refuse to watch or listen to? What's your? Where's your no-go zone? Where you're like, absolutely not. I'm not watching that show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we all have our personal choices about that, right? Like I personally won't listen to Blurred Lines. I think that's like a pretty easy one. Um, <laughs> and there, there are certainly shows that I won't watch and and stores that I won't shop at. But I think at least my belief, and I think this is important, is that individual consumer choices don't have a lot of power under capitalism, right? Um, so we can each choose what makes us feel good. Like, I just don't personally feel okay contributing to that. But that's not really going to make a change in that store, in that, in that market, um, because that is just us sort of making ourselves feel better. But the way that we make change is we make group choices, group consumer choices, and we boycott. Um, and so that's where our power lies. So I think um, there's a temptation to sort of just make these individual choices and, and feel better that our money's out of there. But we really need to put communal pressure on media makers and on marketing and on uh, products that that lead to change because we all are pulling our money together. Can you give an example of an organization that really is stepping out and saying, no, no, this is this is this is a woman's time. This is this is for a woman's body and you do with it what you will because it's your body, your choice. Yeah, I mean, a small example, but I think a really cool one is the Lamely doll. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it, but I personally um, am pretty horrified by Barbie. Uh, I don't blame the girls who want to play with her. I understand. But Barbie, like He-Man, teaches 
very big misconceptions about what an adult woman's body should look like and can look like. Um, you know, it's been proven to be impossible to have a body like Barbie. And I personally grew up with very bad body image and I don't want girls playing with Barbie. That's <laughs> a big thing for me. And the Lamely doll um, was, you know, it was, I think it was a Kickstarter campaign that now uh, is available, the product. Yeah. And the, the Lamely doll said, you know, Barbie is supposed to be 19 years old. What 19 year old does she look like? They took the actual average proportions of 19, a 19-year-old girl in the U.S., and they made a doll that looks like her. And this Lamely doll, also my favorite part about it, besides that it has an accurate body, is that it, you can buy for it these stickers, these decals that have acne, bruises, scratches, um, things like that. So when you get a bruise because you're skateboarding, your Lamely doll can have a bruise too. Like if you I'm, acne, I'm looking at it online right now, and one yeah. of their ads is a little book that the girls read in called The Period Party. Well, that's there awesome. You go. <laughs> this is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And the cool wheelchairs, so it's also it's also inclusive for people's disabilities and all other kinds of really cool stuff. Exactly. Yeah, there's a wheelchair available. Like this is amazing. Yeah. I don't and um I don't know if this is really counts, but um there's a the clothing company Feminist Apparel is mm. really cool. Um they just have a lot of they just have a lot of uh like uh, shirts with like shirts with logos that are very uh sex positive and uh intersectional feminists and all that kind of stuff. If you have young kids there's a show out now called Doc McStuffins, which I just was told about, um, which is a young black girl who is a doctor and she takes care of all of her stuffed animals. Um, and it's just about that. And they have uh, real, real black women doctors on the show as well. Um, and it just teaches, you know, young girls that you can be what you want to be. And it's pretty empowering. All right, I want to talk about politics for a second <laughs> because because social media and and a lot of what what we've been talking about in the last ten minutes have been the difference between being a critic and being a consumer. I don't believe capitalism is, is the enemy. I believe consumerism is. And when we watch movies to to just sit and watch the movie versus to critique the movie, why is it good? Why did it make you laugh? What is it about the music in it? Um, that's that's my goal with our teens here in the facility is I don't I don't want you to just read books and, and watch movies. That's consumerism. That's just you taking what they give you because you feel hungry. Mm -hmm. And I believe a lot of what you guys are talking about and, and you even talked about creating being a critic of the things that we buy. Absolutely. So and, and we've given some examples. So now let's talk about consumerism of politics. First and foremost, are there any politicians that you guys would endorse for their stance on women, feminism, sexuality, um, sex education? Are there any people in power who are currently fighting the fight you fight? Huh. That silence is not very promising. Yeah, I don't believe that anyone currently in politics would come out and say we need sex positive sexuality education. I think that that is um, so far from the fight that's being fought. I mean, I was told, so SICUS is um, one of the national organizations working to advocate for sexuality education, comprehensive sexuality education. And I interviewed someone from there once and I was talking about the need for consent education and she said, Izzy, 
we know there's a need for consent education, but we're fighting for the rights to be able to say penis and vagina in sex ed class. Like that is, we're not there. Well, um, yeah. So the, poli the political world is ages behind. Um, and that's why we're not, <laughs> personally, that's why I'm not in politics. That's why I'm working in a different arena because it's, it's vital work. Someone needs to do it. Thank God for CECUS and Advocates for Youth. Um, we're doing amazing policy work, but it's, it's, <laughs> they're fighting for the right to be able to say penis and vagina in class. So, wow. yeah, uh, I coach gymnastics and I can't say vagina. We have to say the V word and some of my gymnasts are 14. Um, are you serious? Yeah. So, the v -word? yeah. That, that immediately creates an image that it's on par with the N word or the yeah. C word. That is, that's horrendous. Yeah. It also perpetuates the idea that, you know, vaginas are these sacred things that need to be kept like flowers. Um, yeah. And your purity yeah. needs to be protected. I mean, it's, it's a weird sort of double-sided thing where at one point on one end it's vulgar and on the other end it's, it's your sacred purity. Yeah, like your innocence. Ugh. Are we moving forward from this or are we still? <laughs> it's like, I would just say that sometimes I feel like you just, you have to pick your battles. And that's what, like in, when I taught in Newark, I could say the word vagina. And it's just something that like, I think you have to work on slowly. And like, that's why for coaching, it's, you know, it's not high. It's not the m most important thing. And it's not something that comes up very often. So it's something that's why I let that go for now. I would no. say things are changing in terms of um, the new generation of parents, younger parents. I think they are um, using more accurate language. Not everybody, but uh, obviously. But I think there is a contingent of parents who are saying, you know, my parents taught me these cutesy words for vagina or nothing at all. And I'm going to teach my kid to say vagina and penis. And I know... Um, young kids who, when their parents are changing a diaper, will say, wait, my vagina. And um, they they know the words. And I think that's a huge thing. It's just talking to kids early. And I also think it's awesome when kids know the word vulva because, you know, the vagina is is often, the word vagina is often used to refer to all of uh, female external genitalia. And that's inaccurate. And there's other stuff going on. So um, my, my preschoolers know the word vulva, which I feel proud about. <laughs> I didn't learn the word vulva until after college when Izzy taught it to me. <laughs> and, and that was, I was like, how did I not know this? Yeah. I, I don't know. So. All right. So let's, let's wrap around here at the, at the end of our show with your advice for parents. I want to know it. I, I think a lot of people who are going to listen to this know there's an issue. Uh, and and are looking for support. That's that's how people are going to come to the show in the first place. Now, what do what do parents need to do differently, better, not at all? What what's your advice? How how what are you going to send them home with? Right. So there's some there's some steps you can take. So step one um, is identify what are your values about sexuality, because so many times we're reacting. Right. Something comes up and we panic and we're reacting to it, but you actually get to plan, you get to be intentional. So think about it. Think about what was told to you that made you feel good and what was told to you that made you feel bad. Think about what you need to do research on because you don't know enough. Like most of us didn't get what we needed around sexuality. So there's no reason to expect you to be able to do it 
uh, without preparation. So what are your values that you want to pass to your child? That's step one. Step two is recognize and use teachable moments. So the sex talk doesn't work, right? But none of us ever liked any sex talk we've ever had where someone sits us down and says, here's the moment that I'm gonna tell you everything you need to know. We've never talked about it before. We're never gonna talk about it again. That doesn't work. That creates stress, right? It's stressful for you as a parent. It's stressful for the kid. Um, but these moments come up all the time as we were talking about on TV, in commercials, in the stuff your kid comes home from school saying, in the news about our president, for example. So there are many, many opportunities to express the values that you've identified um, and open those dialogues with the kids. And, and the more consistently you do that, every time it comes up, the better the learning will be. And that means that if you make a mistake one time, it's okay, it'll come up again. Um, so that's step two. And then step three is communicate your values without shame. Shame is, is damaging. Shame makes kids less safe. And it's so tempting to use fear tactics to keep our kids safe, but it doesn't work. Shame means I am bad, right? That's what shame is, as opposed to guilt, I did something bad. Shame is I am bad and I'm not worth protection. I'm not worth love. I'm not worth consensual, healthy sexuality. So it actually, shame increases risk taking. So no matter what your value is, there are ways to communicate it without shame. So if your value, for example, is that sex is best within marriage, there's a difference between saying to your child, don't have sex outside of marriage, that's wrong, versus here's why sex inside of marriage is meaningful to me. Here's why that's the choice I would make. And ultimately I will love you no matter what choice you end up making, right? That's different. Um, so think about how you can communicate your values without shame. How can people support what you're doing? How can someone like me get behind what you're doing and uh, a parent, if they really get on here and they've they've sent their their son here, their daughter here, um, and the, suddenly they're they're getting support, and a parent wants to help, what what do you need people to do? There are so many things you can do. <laughs> First of all, um, our tag is a yes to consent, a to not the number. Um, you can visit our website to learn more about us. You could donate to us. There is we have a you can donate to us um, on our website on the top. There's a link we can always use use some money as a nonprofit organization. Um, you can follow us on social media. Again, yes to consent. T O not the number. Um, you can we have an Etsy site, um, so you could purchase some pins or a t-shirt. Um, what am I missing? What am I missing? You can submit you can stories. Oh, yeah. yeah, our blog verbatim, um, we collect stories and we think that's really important because stories are a way to heal and they're a way to feel powerful because silence breeds shame. So it's the opportunity for young people and old people, everyone to share everyone. stories that have things that have happened to them so that other people know they're not alone and that you get to get it off your chest. And um, that's a really big way you can you can contribute. So verbatim is uh, on our website, yes to consent, T-O, not the number, dot org, not dot com, dot org. We're a nonprofit. And you can uh, go to the verbatim link and submit stories that way. You guys, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, before we end, I will also say that you can reach out to us to facilitate workshops. Nice. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's something that, we're always looking to do. And if you feel like, if you're local, especially if you're in the Philadelphia or Northern New Jersey area and you have a community that you feel needs access to this and you want to create a space for us to come in, we would love to talk to you about that. Absolutely. Yeah. 
and just something else i don't i'm not sure if we said about verbatim that um when you submit you can you submit stories and they're anonymous um and then we will publish it with along with an image um that we made from it just to be clear i wasn't sure if we were on that perfect do you have or are you guys um, able to or able to refer if someone calls you and they want therapeutic support? Do you take clients? Do you refer them out? Um, what, what do you do when a kid calls you, contacts you with a message and says, I need help, I need to see somebody? So that hasn't so, happened before. No one has, has sought us out for therapeutic, um, ther for therapy. Uh, but we have gotten contacted with just questions from individuals, which is always, always an option. People say, how do I talk to my kids? What books should I read? Or I was assaulted and I didn't know it. And we can give support and, and we're not therapists and we do not claim to be therapists. Um, and depending on where we are, we might have, ref you know, places to refer and, and might not, but, um, people can always contact us with questions and concerns about sexuality in particular. And on our website, we also do have um, a resource page. So there's a lot of so if there's a lot of issues, we might be able you might be able to find something helpful on that site if you if you want to take a look. Y'all are amazing. Um, I, folks, I've been talking with Rebecca, Izzy, and Natalie from Your Empowered Sexuality. Yes, I found them on Facebook. Yes to Consent. That's at Yes to Consent, T-O, not the number two. Let's see, I already got that. I, I, I heard that's your guy's mantra. I mean, it it's own quite nicely. I didn't even know it. Yeah, they have a phone number, 973-699-3254. Um, they responded very quickly when I reached out to them. Uh, send your kids there. Uh, go there yourself. This is a great page. I feel so blessed to have found them. Um, they've sent me into a direction. Uh, 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 th this Lamely doll, I am going to reach out to them. I want to interview someone from them. I'm going to feminist apparel. Uh, I'm going to check out Doc uh, McStuffins. I, I love this stuff. I think you guys are doing amazing work. I love meeting other people who are out there on the battlefield, on the front lines taking taking the the enemy down one at a time a school at a time an organization at a time um and uh i want to uh chat with you guys once i take us off uh recording uh about some other things so uh rebecca izzy natalie thank you guys so much for being on beyond risk and back thank, thank you, you so, so much. much this was great yeah pa parents the the mantra remains you take care of yourself first you take care of your adult relationship second, you take care of your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with our children. As always, I'm gonna thank my boss goddess, uh, Kristen Walker over there at Mental Health News Radio, who's been uh, such an incredible support to me. Um, and we'll see you next time on Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Join us each week for your connection to experts in adolescent health and wellness, recovery, and responsibility, and also to listen to teens talk about their lives in crisis. For more information on our program for struggling teens or me, please go to firemountainprograms.com, join us on Facebook at Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center, or at Beyond Risk and Back. Visit our YouTube channel at Fire Mountain RTC for even more support with our parent training videos. 
Special thanks to Mental Health News Radio for their continued love and support of our program. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com to see all of their podcasts. Feel free to email me at Aaron at firemountainprograms.com. 